Welcome to Season 2, Episode 15 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Louis Armand. Louis is the author of The Combinations. He's also a poet and an artist. He joins us from his home in Prague. Welcome to the show, Louis. Yeah, cheers, man. Thanks. I want to start on Prague. Uh, it's Golem City, city of literature. It's a city of Kafka, Kundera, Max Broad, the Maharal of Prague. How did boy from Sydney end up in Prague? He's bedazzled by cliches. No. To be serious, I think it was a kind of... Um, delayed reaction to the end of the Cold War, you know, 1989. And it was kind of on my my radar for a number of reasons. And uh, it probably sounds a little peculiar now, but I think Harvard played a, a bit of a role. Um, and I was interested in a couple of the poets who were publishing in English, were being translated in English, like Mirosov Holub. Uh, he was had a few books came out with Faber that were uh, were interesting at the time, and uh, there was a, an appeal to be in a a city that had been, you know, under communism, but had 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 a long literary history or diverse cultural history spanning, you know, uh, many generations back, and uh, that was. That was uh, in in a country whose head of state was was a playwright philosopher. This was a uh, you know in the early nineties. This was a a pretty radical idea with with uh, you know Tory Britain and Bush uh, in the United States. This was this was a a bastion that seemed of enlightenment, and I wanted to see what that was like. Interesting. So before you moved over there. Uh... You were living in Manly, you said, and then you moved up to Tamworth, which is in the, I guess, the north coast of, or not even coast, the north part of New South Wales. Um, what were yeah. you doing before you moved to Prague? Yeah, Tamworth's in the north, northwest, right? So a bit of a distance from the coast. But um, what was I doing before I went to Prague? Well, I went to university and I did a bit of, uh, traveling. I was in Canada briefly working on a, a project on international charter for uh, rights, student rights and distance education. And I spent a bit of time traveling around Europe, North Africa and uh, United States, New York. After you moved to Prague, you've been there for, what, 30 years now? More than that, right? Yeah, roughly, almost, something like that. Yeah. So um, how did you set yourself up there and how did you find the art scene there today? Uh, well, the art scene was really, really different back then. <laughs> it was it was pretty underground. Um, you know, in one of the one of the things that was really attractive about Prague in the early nineties was the lack of uh, a sort of determined infrastructure. Everything was up in the air. Everything was in in flux. Uh, and that certainly involved the art scene, which in so many places is either determined by uh, state sponsorship or a, a commercial 
gallery uh, scene. And neither of those were really functioning. Uh, in fact, still Prague isn't, the, the, the art scene here isn't really characterized by a, commer by a commercial galleries uh, and, and, and so on. So it was like little, little pop-ups, you know, underground uh, stuff, underground theater, uh, a literary scene, I think was the most prominent feature of the so-called expatriate community. Um, but I'm speaking of the art scene in general, not just the, 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 uh, the expatriate uh, scene. That's evolved enormously. It's completely changed now, of course. And since 2000, there's been a huge influx of uh, capital uh, gradually transforming um, that. Um, yeah, but, you know, in, in, in the early 90s, everything was pretty much possible. So if you had an idea, you could... You could do something. So, for example, the first show that I had was in a was in a uh, a basement, uh, a big white cube basement uh, at the base of Wenceslas Square, Vatsalski Namiesti. It was a it was a huge space that had been opened up, uh, interestingly, by a group of Ukrainian and Russian artists who were living here uh, at the time. And so there was a real international uh, uh, community of artists around uh, what they were doing. Uh, and they were also sort of squatting and uh, uh, doing sort of setting up you know, circus, uh, vaudeville sort of stuff as well, you know, sort of street theatre. So it was all sort of meshing. I have to ask you about the influence of, uh, I guess, people like the Marhal of Prague to start with, but then going back to, you know, to people like Kafka, uh, that Jewish influence on Prague and that influence on storytelling, how do you think that affects the place? Well, I don't know how you say it affects the place. It certainly affects the image of the place. You know, uh, Kafka's been commodified uh, to quite some degree. I mean, it, it took, I think, that kind of pressure from outside to uh, really clarify his position uh, in terms of the, let's say, more official culture. Here. A little bit like James Joyce in Ireland, there was a great deal of resistance, uh, in fact, because you know, Kafka was considered to be uh, somehow ethnically German, uh, because also he didn't, he didn't write in uh, Czech. I mean, he did write his letters in Czech, uh, but he didn't write his fiction uh, in Czech. And there was a, a sort of belatedness, I think, uh, in the recognition of, of, of Kafka. I mean, in terms of the, 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 the local... Uh, uh, literary uh, scene, there's a huge discontinuity. You have to take this into account. The, the war uh, had, had, a, had an enormous impact. And then, of course, uh, the, the communist regime, which was also deeply and profoundly anti-Semitic, uh, brought about an enormous discontinuity. So uh, Kafka has a, a, an existence which is rather kind of fictional in a recuperation of history sense of fictional. You know, there's no real living dynamic that continues from, from any of that scene. There's great nostalgia here for, so let's say, what they call the First Republic, which was the, the period between Czechoslovak independence in 1919 and, 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 the, and the Nazi uh, protectorate so-called the, uh, the, 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 the Nazi occupation. Um, but those successive uh, 
totalitarian regimes really wiped out that whole uh, intellectual culture. Sounds like it's kind of a, I guess, a revisionist view of history in a lot of ways, I suppose, looking at that in terms of culture. Yeah, I mean, what a, you know, the things attract people to, to places or, or affect people in places for various reasons. I mean, the notion of kind of a genius loki or, or whatnot. Um, you know, it's 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 a it's a question of the the texts in any case, how one sort of you know interacts with the writing. It seems to me that's that's the the main thing. Um, it's uh, there's no ghost of of, of Kafka hanging around in the cafes. I mean, the, the, that cafe culture doesn't really exist. Uh, some of the cafes have been reconstructed, but, you know, the other thing to keep in mind is like most major European cities, the, the effects of tourism uh, have also transformed uh, the notion of this sort of, let's say, intimacy, kind of historical intimacy, the notion of a, of a evolving... Uh, seen, you know, the generations and whatnot, the notion of, of, of somehow being a, um, a part of a place is a, is a dislocation because uh, the, the parts of the city are completely saturated, of course. Uh, the, the, and, uh, you know, the sorts of places that, that Kafka used to hang out uh, are now seen predominantly tourist places, the same with. If you go to any of the places he hung out, there's mostly on the tourist trail now. So I guess this is kind of a stupid question, being what you just said. If you were a tourist, what are the kind of places that you would want to go to in Prague rather than that tourist trap stuff? <laughs> well, it's interesting, actually, that you asked because I, I spent quite some time working on these, I don't know, you could probably call them psychogeographical projects, you know, the Yellow Prague or, or whatnot. We, we produced a couple of books around it. One of them was called Abolishing Prague, which is really, you know, set on this sort of course of, uh, of getting, getting past or, or undoing uh, some of these gilded notions of the, of the city and looking at... Uh, Either those blind spots that exist, and they exist everywhere, of course, but they they, they seem to exist in a more dramatic relation uh, in a place that is so fixated upon and so seen, so so exposed, so photographed, so um, overwrought in the imagination that, that that so much of it actually remains invisible. Uh, so uh, we pursued a couple of projects. You know, a lot of them, of course, walking. You walk through various parts of the city and photographing it. Uh, and also taking account of, of, of the really radical uh, changes that have, the city has undergone. Um, you know, you, you notice them in places like New York, you notice it in Berlin, you certainly notice it here. Uh, one of the areas that we focused on was, was, uh, was Lieben, um, which had been, uh, has been for a long time, a fairly underprivileged area around, around uh, around Palmovka, I mean, the communists gutted some of the historical areas there. There'd been, uh, it's an island in Bensky Ostrov, um, which uh, for a long time was a kind of wasteland. Um, also, you know, second-hand car lots, uh, terminals for refitting river barges, 
things like that. Um, the kind of place you could imagine serving as body dumps for contract kills and, and whatnot, a real kind of non-place, uh, an invisible zone in a city now. That's all been transformed into condos and uh, marinas and, and, and whatnot, golf driving ranges. Um, you know, so you have this, this interesting layering and uh, because of the dramatic and foreshortened nature of these changes that have occurred in the space of only a couple of uh, decades, the shift seems to be seismic. Um, you know, you have those iconic places that people see, like uh, the, you know, the castle or, or, the, or, the, or the cathedral or the church on Stonemisk and Armisty and places like that. But uh, the other places around have uh, simply vanished, completely vanished. So is Prague the kind of place you see yourself living for the rest of your life or is it a place that you're in now and you'd move on from? Yeah, I've never really taken that view. I, I can't say that when I first came here, I imagined for a moment the kind of t- time scale I'm just mentioning, being able to have that kind of perspective. And I think it would be folly to simply assume uh, what's going to happen. Um, I mean, the, the world seems to be in that frame of mind at the moment uh, too. I mean, I really don't know. Uh, it's not, I don't have any particular uh, determination to be in one place or another. Let's move on to your books. You've written over 10 novels. You've written critical works. You've written poetry. I first heard of you uh, because of the combinations. It's almost a thousand pages long. I'm still halfway through it. It's brilliant. Can you tell us a bit more about it, your central character, Nemec, and this kind of white whale in the book, the Voynich Manuscript? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's the great red herring as well as the white whale. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, Nemec is an in- interesting guy, I think. I mean, I, I, I found him somehow. Um, you know, it's he, he, his name is is uh, kind of echoes with with uh, there, there's there's a great new wave film director uh, Jan Nemet uh, as well. Who you should definitely check out. Um, but Nemet derives from from the word for for German uh, in Germany, um, and it's interesting in that sense. Uh, since there's a kind of schismogenetic relation between the Czech lands and the, the German lands, um, that the 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 the, the, the also uh, indicates our uh, muteness or dumbness. Um, you know, those who don't speak language. Um, so clearly, you know, the, the foreigners from over over there. Um, so so the, the classic situation of of, of the German being uh, the foreigner and uh, and so for me this this he becomes a kind of an avatar not so much of, of, of me as a person there's nothing really autobiographical about it but as a as a foreigner or an avatar of foreignness uh, a habitude of foreigners you know living in, in a place of being of a place but not being of a of a place at the same time, which which for me is a a general condition of 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 the uh, I mean it's a general condition of being, but uh, in a particular sort of exacerbated sense, a general condition of the artist. Um, 
it's in tension with the nationalist ideas of the, the artist who speaks the myth of the the people or the nation or whatnot. I, I wanted to emphasize the, the contrary notion, which I suppose is again sort of a, something related to Kafka and the notion of, you know, uh, what, what Deleuze and Guattari call minor literature, you know, that decision to write in a minor dialect of a, of a language that has a, a foreignness, even within a kind of, within the Habsburg uh, period. So, you know, I suppose that's also a residue, you know, a residue of my 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 Australianness, if you like. If if I have Australianness and coming from Australia, this this notion of being somehow marginal within the English language, the antipodes, all these kind of uh, conditions or, or complexes that you're you, you certainly used to be brought up with. I don't know if things have moved on. Yeah, that's 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 where where Nemitz comes from. And so, I guess with the structure of this book as well, this book is set up in a really interesting fashion. Do you want to tell us a bit about the structure? Um, well, there's the the obvious, uh, which is often probably the most deceptive, right? Um, but it's been commented upon. So, in a way, I'm just rehearsing what other people have said about it. Uh, without giving anything particularly away, right? So it's 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 what eight hundred and eighty-eight pages. So there's a certain kind of numerology at work. Um, uh, sixty-four chapters. Um, it's also divided into two halves. You said you you were halfway through, so I guess you're up to the intermission. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the number eight has a particular significance uh, within that history and, and, and ongoing discourse of neo-Nazism, um, association with the letter H. So, you know, the, 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 the association with Adolf Hitler and, and whatnot, and, and a great part of the, the book is about um, Nazism and the, and the sort of the ghosts and specters of Nazism. Um, that that eight works with regards to that. It's also an infinity sign tipped on its head, if you like. Um, it's a it's a Möbius strip. Um, it does it does many things that that it doesn't simply uh, accede to this uh, uh, Nazi mystical discourse by any stretch. Um, but it, it it's there and it teases with these uh, associations and 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 sets about. Uh, not encoding them into the text, but but trying to upset uh, and and uh, sabotage them in certain respects. Um, the other thing that people have commented on is the the relationship to chess. Um, Sixty four squares on a chessboard, eight by eight, and uh, and chess does play a important, you might say, integral role in the. The narrative uh, certainly occasions, uh, you know, events in the in the book. You know, things happen over a chessboard, or or chess is somehow allegorical for various, you know, historical uh, events or occurrences, or messages are sent sort of in an encoded, vaguely menacing way through chess analogies. Uh, 
with the Voynich manuscript within this work, that's a pretty fascinating manuscript to start with. But what fascinates you about that particular thing? Well, when I started working on the book, uh, I don't think Wiki uh, existed. And uh, so it wasn't as nowadays, this is all instant, instantly accessible. And all the facsimiles and and whatnot are all uh, online. This was a little bit more mysterious, uh, thanks to the limitations of of, of the medium of of the web uh, at, at that stage. And uh, it wasn't uh, especially easy to find uh, things out about it. There were all sorts of uh, uh, chats, um, uh, lists, serbs, and, and whatnot that sort of accumulated over the years of uh, you know information about this this strange manuscript and rumours. Uh, you know, it's it's. Uh, its provenance, its history, uh, its various attempts at deciphering it, uh, and, and so on, whether the whole thing was a hoax, uh, even whether it really existed or not. Um, and it just, it offered itself really as this sum of all these preposterous uh, narratives about secret manuscripts and hidden, hidden uh, information you know, the esoteric and the occult uh, and, uh, uh, and the very fact that it didn't yield up and may may very well uh, never be able to yield anything up. I mean, subsequently, there have been some uh, other claims were deciphered it, but, but just within the framework of the book, you know, there was no, no, no likelihood when I, when I first became interested in, in, in Voynich, that, that this was ever really going to yield itself up to the efforts uh, of, of the various decipherers. And, and this in itself was, was deeply appealing. It seemed like the ultimate, again, like the, the castle, just that thing that somehow is so imposing, so dominating, and yet inaccessible, unapproachable. I wanted to ask you about the, I guess, the publication, especially of this work, because I struggled to get it for quite a long time. I think there are quite a few people who talked about it. And I know, especially over here in Australia, uh, we heard a little bit about it, but not a whole lot. Was it hard getting this particular work out there and really getting the, I think, the recognition that I think you really well deserve for this piece of work? Yeah. Well, firstly, I think one of the issues with a book like this is its particularity. you know, if you want to set a, a text to an exact page count and you have all the sort of graphic elements and, and whatnot that, that have a certain kind of significance, you need to be able to work with a, uh, with somebody who is sympathetic to what you're attempting to do and who is able to realise that uh, uh, as an object, you know, as, as, as a book, um, other than just a... I mean, you could do this as a PDF, obviously, but the... The whole point, in a way, of this book about mysterious book was to have a, a, a physical object, and it, it could have been a very interesting hypertext project uh, in another life, uh, you know. Um, but yeah, I think it was always somehow uh, 
going to end up this this way. I mean, there's a lot of very interesting work that is produced out there, you know, whether you call it artist books or whether it passes as, as poetry or experimental writing or whatnot that, 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 that has no likelihood of ever uh, entering into that kind of marketplace of ideas um, because the economy is controlled by uh, forms of publishing that that, that are you know fundamentally normalized that, that that really can't accommodate that. I mean, House of Leaves, I think, is an exception, but I think it's an exception because of the cult following it generated as a web object, in a sense, before it was published as a book. So it was really a commercial prospect from the point of view of the publishers that they had a a base to tap in tap into. That's a, a rare, rare thing, and, and and for him it hasn't turned out well in any case because he's he subsequently dropped, um, and that's always a, an issue. I think is for, for any artist, it's it's from my point of view, it's much much more important to work with people who want to work, want to work with what you're doing because of what you're doing and because of what they're doing. You know, these two things are have a symbiosis uh, rather than that you're just a commercial prospect or, or or whatnot. So, you know, I think I think there's certain kind of work that finds a certain kind of publisher. I don't see that as a bad thing. Mm. I guess the only bad thing for some of us is just trying to get it can be challenging, but I, I'm really glad to see that some of your work is a bit more freely available now. Um, but, yeah, hopefully everyone will be able to get their hands on it at some point. What are you working on at the moment? Yeah. Um, well, I, I did just, uh, I, I tend to work on a few things all at once, which is, which is why I don't just have a ready-made answer. I've, I've got a, as I mentioned before we, uh, we started, a theoretical work called Anthropology, which is coming out from Andy Oedipus uh, this year in the United States, um, and uh, a poetry collection um, called Infantilisms, which is uh, 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 going to come out next year from an Australian publisher. Um, and... I have a couple of smaller projects that I've been working on, uh, an expanded version of Glitchhead, which is a collage hybrid chaotic inventory that we were talking about uh, before, um, and uh, a strange autobiographical text, perhaps, uh, called Arachnid Self-Portrait, um, which hopefully will also be serialized this year. I don't know. These are the sorts of... A couple of things like this, yeah. With some of the stuff on your website, I've been through that quite a lot. You've got your um, most recent, I guess, longer novel, um, Vampire, on there, and and the follow-up <laughs> saying as well, and they're available there for everybody to read. Are they in book form as well? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Vampire, I think is uh, can still be. I uh, got. I mean, that's from Alienist. That was a, a, a strange little project 
or big project um, for them is totally uncommercial. I think you just write to them, they'll send you a copy. Hmm. Um, so not for sale, but available, uh, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, most of them, some of them are, are very small print ROMs because they're just you know, little artifacts like uh, Vitus came out recently. Um, that's sort of a poetry thing with Descartes' dog. Um, I think they're small print runs of uh, 50 to 100, something like that. With your work as well, there's quite a few visual elements. It's something I've always uh, wanted to do. It, you know, there were, it's much, much easier with, with uh, software nowadays, I think. I mean, you know, I used to work uh, in, in newspaper as well. I had a very interesting experience because I got involved uh, when you still did manual layout uh, using big blue lined layout sheets and adhesive wax and you did you, you laid everything out manually. Uh, and then it all, of course, went digital. And, you know, I, 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 I studied art and, and, uh, and uh, I've been working in, in, in visual arts um, for a long time. But how do you say? Um, the issue for me was not so much having visual elements, uh, but composing the text as a whole, as a whole entity, you know, not having a, a text and then typesetting it with some visuals or illustrating the text or writing something in response to some, some visual thing or just producing a, a, a you know, putting something together on, on the page that, 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 that were really unrelated. The, the, the challenge was to actually compose live, as it were, on uh, or in with the software uh, as you know, I used to do on a on a sheet of paper, uh, and, and and work that way, and and uh, that's really what was happening uh, more um, when I started working on Vampire, because the, the, this is this is a bit of a, a commitment to make, um, by which I mean, when you uh, most people are just using a word processor. When they're, when they're writing text. And uh, most word processes, you know, word processes are pretty flexible when it comes to working with, with text. But when you start, uh, say, using a program, whether it's, whether it's Photoshop or InDesign or something like that, to, to work with both text and, and image and, and the whole typography and, and whatnot, as soon as you make that decision, you're, you're really locked in. And... Uh, and, uh, you know, you can't really change horse midstream easily in, in, in any sense. Um, and I think, you know, it reminded, it, it, it's very much like in the early 90s when hypertext uh, was being experimented with and that commitment to actually writing uh, a hypertext it's not a commitment that a great many people made in the scheme of things. You know, in fact, there was a, there was a huge amount of resistance uh, on the part of um, 
the so-called you know, industry, you know, very conventional notions of poetry, let's say, uh, prevailed and, and certain notions of publishing and the fiction uh, prevailed. And what we saw was the uh, re-inscription of the literary journal online in pretty much the same form as it existed in print. Uh, and uh, and uh, hypertext as such was, was, was something that didn't really go very far. And the commitment to actually, you know, composing for that novel medium um, is something that I, I don't think too many people really undertook uh, for, for, for many reasons. But, but I think on a compositional level, it's a, it's, it's a different poetic as well. Yeah, I think also from, I guess, the typesetting, and this is a practical perspective as well, like just even the typesetting of works like that would make it really difficult to put out there and to, to format and to do all of those kind of things. Yeah, as, I mean, as a task, if you, were, if, if you were writing something and then handing it over to somebody to design, that would also be a different thing. You know, at, you know artist books have a long history, and, uh, and there are a lot of people producing some really fascinating stuff, and they've been doing it for a long time. It's not a new thing. And you hardly ever see these uh, objects. There are certain you know, uh, publishers who specialize in them. Uh, there's a sort of crossover with concrete poetry, which is a pretty sort of uh, marginalized aspect of poetry within the scheme of what is called poetry. Um, certain galleries that that, that, that present the work and so on, certain book fairs. And we go to this, the small publishers fair in, in London, or we did before COVID, which is a annual fair, which uh, showcases uh, small uh, presses, poetry presses uh, predominantly, uh, and uh, makers of artist books uh, and very sort of uncategorizable things in between and it's it's really fascinating um i know of very few places where you can find these uh, uh books um you know in, in terms of actually you, you're talking about difficulty finding combinations i think in the scheme of things that's relatively easy to come across compared to some of these some of these things um it's a real shame i mean you know you have uh also, acemic poetry, or you can call it poetry, you call them acemic novels if you like, acemic whatever. Um, how this is distinct from painting would be would be another question. But you know, I think I think that there are there are publishers who have been doing this. The the thing is, a kind of conceptual barrier has been built up between the notion of what is a novel what is fiction, what is poetry with a capital P, and what are all these weird, crazy things that just live in a, in a kind of limbo space that nobody really wants to take responsibility for because they're difficult to categorise. Um, you know, when we use words like novel or, or whatnot, I, they make a mockery of it. Yeah, I think it makes a huge difference to how your book is out there in the world, depending on how it's categorized. And I think you're right. If something's hard to categorize and often it disappears or never appears in the first place. Oh, yeah, no, it's guaranteed. You know, 
I had a very interesting. Uh, uh, I mean, I've had I've been having this experience for a long time now. I I, I started collaborating with uh, John Kinsler back in 1997. Um, we met virtually uh, as a result of a of an issue of Sulphur Magazine that Marjorie Perloff was editing, uh, focused on the Pacific. Uh, Danny Huppets was in there as well. That was a that was a, a revelation. In fact. What Danny and TechSpace were doing down in Melbourne at the time, I think, was just outrageous. It was unlike anything I'd seen uh, coming out of Australia. And I thought it was deeply ironic that uh, here I was in Prague, you know, discovering, uh, you know, uh, people in Melbourne and, and connect with somebody in Cambridge um, by way of a, uh, a sort of postmodern critic in the United States. But, um, you know, however it happened, uh, John and I started collaborating and collaborating in a, in a pretty aggressive way in terms of with regards to overwriting each other's texts and obliterating traces of distinct authorship. And uh, personally, I found this um, uh, a very interesting and rewarding uh, experience it really got you away from all sorts of uh, uh, postures, as it were. So, performance of writing became something entirely uh, different. In any case, um, you know the 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 reception, as you say, of the, the work by other writers and whatnot was was great. You know, Pierre Joris wrote an introduction for the first book that we did, which is called Synopticon. But there was almost like a pathological, you know, uh, need to ignore uh, this work. Um, not so much, I think, because of what it was in terms of, you know, the text on the, on the page or who had their name on it, but the collaboration simply uh, as, a, as, as, a, as a thing has very little place you know there 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 are there are there are a number of australian writers who produce fantastic collaborations and have have done it over an almost lifelong uh, period but, but by and large collaboration is something that people are averse to uh for whatever reason and it's a it's a little like you know categorizing something by genre or or whatnot, if you can't clearly categorize the ownership of the, the text, then somehow it's it's not real, you know, it's not going to stand up. You can't attribute some kind of intention because it's schizophrenic. It's, it doesn't have a single authorship. Before we move on, I've got a random listener question for you from Dan. He said to ask you about your batting average. I'm not sure what that means. That'd be Dan Kenny. <laughs> I have no idea what my batting average was. I know that my last match in Dresden, I got out for a duck. <laughs> so, so I I share one thing with Don Bradman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Both ducks. All right. Um, let's get on to your gateway books and your influences what were the books that were really important to you growing up and who influenced your writing like growing up you know i mean there are all sorts of ways of answering a question like that right but no i um 
I stumbled upon an anthology I think my father must have had as a textbook from when he was at school. And uh, it was an unusual anthology uh, in that it had work by W.H. Auden in there uh, next to Kenneth Slessor. And uh, I say this is unusual because uh, my experience uh, for, for, for many years uh, was that uh, Australian writers uh, didn't often rub shoulders with their international counterparts in terms of anthologies and, and whatnot. Um, you know, I had this experience when I was in, I was in Melbourne a couple of times and I was, uh, I was uh, re- doing some research for, for Abacus, which is uh, a book uh, that is where Australia is, 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 a certain Australia, a certain evolving idea of Australia is the main protagonist, you might say. And anyway, I was, I was doing a lot of research for that and I had, had wanted to go back to the National Gallery the Victoria, and have a look at the, uh, the, the 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 modernist, the Australian modernists they had there, and, and, and the Impressionist collection. And I went to the older building, which is where they housed the Picassos and so on, the, the European masters, the modernist masters. And uh, I, I was informed that the, the Australian collection was at Federation Square. Um, and so I went there and I, I looked at it and I thought, this is really, really strange. You know, why, why is it that all these major works of Australian art are at Federation Square and yet all the, all the, all the masters of, you know, so-called European masters or, or modernist masterpieces are, are at this other location? And I thought, well, okay, you know, they want to showcase the Australian work at Federation Square. Uh, no, 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 you know, it's probably that syndrome, right, where you just can't possibly have Fred Williams, you know, uh, side by side with with uh, Max Ernst or something like this, and, and, and which curator would take responsibility for it? You know, this kind of absolute neurosis about Anyway, so this is... I was kind of impressed uh, later on when I thought about this anthology that I picked up uh, as, a, as a young kid. But I was, I, I was uh, impressed by the, you might say, the catholicity of the selection and the fact that, you know, a writer like Auden, who I came on later to appreciate, next to Slessor, likewise. So that had a, that had a bit of an impact on me, less the individual poets uh, than seeing them in relation, uh, particularly in a climate that I, I felt, as many people obviously have felt over the years, of, of this stifling kind of cultural cringe, you know, this sense of you couldn't possibly, you know, you'd be utterly pretentious to imagine yourself in the same room, uh, you know, as, as this, other, this other person. Yeah, so that had, that had an influence on me um you know i mean later on there were other things i mean obviously james joyce had a certain influence um but not only um 
you know, a lot of, a lot of lesser regarded writers. Um, when I came here, I mean, I was, I was very impressed with a, a younger writer named Lukasz Tolman, who unfortunately uh, committed suicide, but uh, his work is hardly known anywhere outside of Prague, really. Even here, it's, you know, only, it's, his work's published by Twisted Spoon Press. Uh, so, you know, in terms of being able to access somebody who you wouldn't know about to want to access in the first place, but uh, Anya Volvich is, 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 is a writer who impressed me enormously. I came across her by pure accident, um, wandering through the stacks. You know, I, I was always happy uh, being able to wander among stacks at libraries rather than having to order books um, because of the, you know, the chances of just stumbling across things at random. Uh, things you'd never heard about. And I think my greatest education was never in the classroom. It was always just stumbling uh, uh, through, the, through the stacks and just picking things off the shelves and, and reading them. Um, yeah, I was discussing this with this uh, friend yesterday about going to bookshops and wanting to pick up stuff you've never heard of before or you've never seen before. And purely stumbling, I think, is such a great way to read. Used to be, you know, there used to be a couple of really good uh, bookstores. You know, I always liked Goulds in Sydney, mm. uh, but in you know, I, I spent probably more time in New York going around bookstores and 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 Gotham Book Book Bookmart was was legendary, um, and in terms of. Uh, poetry, you know, contemporary poetry, small press pamphlets, all sorts of almost impossible to find uh, books uh, would be there in the poetry section, and you, you could spend days just just uh, reading through that and and, and gaining a, a a pretty deep uh, knowledge of of a whole uh, you know moment movement impulse in, in, in contemporary, not only American poetry, but you know, also international. Uh, you know, these places disappear. I mean, Gotham shut down uh, years ago. Uh, St. Mark's books, likewise. Uh, you know, I, I don't know anywhere uh, where, you know, I mean, there's Glee books that are still functioning uh, in Sydney, um, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, they're still around. You know, I mean, Collected Works sadly closed down in, in, in Melbourne. That was another bookstore like that um, run by, uh, you know, and Chris had that. And he was a poet and he had, he had that. That was his rationale for everything behind what he was doing with the, with the stool. He was a living repository. Uh, and the stool was a physical repository of a whole uh, poetic epoch in a way uh, and it's it's tragic in a, in a sense when those things close down or are forced to close down because of economics um, because with them goes uh, you know so much opportunity for transmission of cultural knowledge all right let's move on to the things that you're currently reading I'm like i'm actually i'm reading a very interesting book i wanted to read it from the moment I heard about it, it's the dawn of everything. We've had a lot of press. Dave Graeber and uh, David Wengrau 
it's uh, uh, history of prehistory of human prehistory, if you like. Um, and it's very interesting because not only does it present a lot of recent archaeological evidence and um, things that go against many of the kind of uh, cliches and truisms that you know, we would have grown up about, about the Neolithic and, 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 and whatnot, paleoanthropology in general. But the attitude towards how uh, the archaeological evidence might paint a picture of possibilities in human uh, so, you know, social organization. Uh, this, 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 is, this is what I find so interesting about this book. It's uh, very, let's say, innovative or open-minded, perhaps not even innovative, just open-minded uh, about how evidence can be uh, assembled into a, a picture uh, that, that nothing is necessarily tending towards some, uh, uh, some particular sort of social configuration. And uh, some, of what they, some of the pictures they paint uh, absolutely fascinating. So that's what I've been reading uh, recently, not literature, as, as it were, with a capital L. One, one of the capital L literature things that I saw your name on recently was the logos by Mark De Silva. Oh, yes, it's huge. It's very big. <laughs> I, I, it's it's uh, it's 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 vast. It's uh, it's you should you should definitely definitely read it. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond Zero and come back with Louis Top Shelf. This episode is brought to you by the reanimated corpse of Vladimir Lenin and the United Soviet Republic. Coming soon. Dosvidaniya. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for Louis Top Shelf. I, I, I used to be a bit of a book fetishist. You know, things used to matter terribly much, and, and now I've become more far more zen. I mean, they, they sit on the bookshelves and they collect dust um, or frass. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, I think these things always change. Yeah. Uh, there are books that have been deeply significant uh, at different times, you know, um, and I, I don't... I, I don't usually like uh, prioritizing uh, particular ones over others because, you know, it's, I've just been working actually on, uh, on Richard Macon's new book, which is called Work. Uh, I've worked on a couple before, uh, Morning. Um, uh, it was published by Equus a couple of years back, and they they, they did the combinations, uh, and they're also going to be doing uh, work. And we did one of his books with um, Alienist. You know, I came across Richard's work totally by accident. This is another example. Uh, we were at a book fair and setting up, and I looked at the table next to ours, and there was this, again, this, this big, big book. Uh, called Dwelling, and I had an interesting cover, very, very understated 
Totemic. It was actually a radar installation down in Hastings that had been photographed for the cover image. And uh, I, I, I sneakily had a look inside it while the other guy was setting up. It turned out to be Ken Edwards, who was the publisher of Reality Street back then before they closed down. And it didn't take me uh, very long at all to realize this was an incredible piece of writing. And uh, I, I, I can uh, strongly recommend to anybody pretty much anything by Richard Macon, almost impossible to get uh, again. But, you know, you, if, you, if you look, uh, you can uh, find, uh, again, this is, this is writing that doesn't fall into any easy categories in terms of fiction, poetry, or, or anything you'd want to call, you know, a genre. Um, but yeah, no, I've been I've been reading him uh, recently. You know, working on the on the on the book, and uh, really impressive. Okay, I'll have to check him out if I can find him. I can always arrange for something to be sent to you. Oh, that would be nice. I would appreciate that. <laughs> Done. Um, any other people you'd like to mention that we should read? Ooh. Well, I mean, there are too many. I mean, what I would suggest, instead of uh, necessarily tracking down individual writers, because what's interesting today is, yes, they're, they're, they're fascinating writers, but um, they're also part of uh, uh, an emergent, re-emergent small publishing scene, particularly in fiction, if, if we're talking predominantly about fiction because poetry has has inhabited this zone uh, a lot. But something has happened uh, in the last only five years, let's say, uh, where there's been a, a real emergence of, uh, of publishers, very marginal or non-aligned, underground, whatever you want to call them, uh, publishers of, of work that, again, is somewhat against the grain sometimes very provocative. Um, and uh, you know, inside the castle, the United States has been producing uh, some amazing stuff. I mean, amphetamine sulfate, another small press, uh, Schism, Expat, based in New York. Now, they've done some really good stuff. Um, Apocalypse Party, 1111, um, who uh, published the, the Garden, um, they've, they've only been around for a couple of years, but they're doing interesting things. Prototype in London. Um, you know, they've, they've, they've also been doing great stuff. Um, Sweat Drenched, uh, a new, new, new uh, Brighton-based publisher, Miskatonic Virtual University Press. They've, they did Glitchhead, but they're also doing like theory fiction. So this kind of, again, weird uh, genre. And uh, I, I, I suggest Urbanomic as well, um, who again sort of publishing this in this, this fringe of of of, uh, of of sort of underground theory. Um, and uh, the you know the, the writers who are associated with a lot of these presses, um, you know, worth worth discovering. Uh, the presses themselves are worth discovering because of the work that they're uh, doing with the with, with the books. Um, some of the smaller like, pamphlet publishers, like uh, Self Fuck, uh, 
you know, um, provocative name, but the, the, the publications, are, uh, the chapbooks are, are really interesting uh, objects. Great work. Okay, very and good. Great, great communities around them as well. Gonna have to look into a lot of those publishers because a lot of them I haven't heard of. I should probably let you go, but before I do, can you tell us where we can find you online and where we can buy your books? www.louis-armand.com and uh, there are links. There are links. <laughs> Perfect. I'll put some in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining me all the way from Prague and I hope we can catch up again soon. Thank you. Speak to you again. Thanks once again to Louis Armand. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at beyondzeropod, and you can email us at beyondthezeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back with your next episode next week. <laughs>